Football is back, and so is the Ringer NFL show. Coming at you five days a week with wall-to-wall coverage from recapping the Sunday games, giving a player perspective, deep dives, and previewing the coming slate. Check out the Ringer NFL show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Oh, sorry, sorry. The countdown just skipped. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast and Ring RC. I'm Misa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hunt. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm right, thanks, man. Happy New Year. Happy New Happy Year. Happy New Year. Am I going to go with Larry David and be like, well, what's the Statue of Limitations on the Happy New Year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not that not that hyped about the New Year, only because... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a pandemic. I'm not really hyped <laughs> about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm doing very much to the New Year like I do at the beginning of of a new season when someone asks me about Arsenal I'll be like well <laughs> let's just see how we go I think that's very very wise that's very very wise how was your Christmas and stuff very peaceful ate a lot watched all eight seasons of Homeland wow which is 72 hours of television <laughs> wow yeah so um, yeah I watched that with the family 72 Mo- hours Moose's book output might be down a bit this year I think it might be watched a lot of, a lot of TV. Homeland was the main thing, but a lot of Mad Men watched bizarrely Attack on Titan, which is, I don't know what people are thinking, but (laughs) that is a wild series. Just, just Google it. It's wild. I've not seen it. It's wild, Ryan. It's wild. I didn't watch anywhere near as much stuff as I wanted to. What are you up to? Well, I got sick on Christmas Day, so that sucked. So I spent (laughs) the the afternoon of Christmas Day in bed and everyone thought I had COVID, but I didn't. I think I did seven COVID tests or eight COVID tests in six days. Oh my goodness. Two of them were PCRs. And then I had to quarantine. I'm still technically in quarantine, but they've changed the rules now, which means, well, they're changing the rules for people arriving back to Germany today. Hmm. And they've lifted the restrictions, I think. So I need to, do, I need to, I need to call them, ask them if I'm allowed out. Yeah, it means that I don't have to quarantine you. Yeah, yeah, yeah you weird, yeah. you were just like, oh, I'm hanging out, I'm hanging here to the sixth. This means, in theory, <laughs> you could fly back from the UK in a couple of days and be straight out and about, even though I got back on the 27th and I might have to stay in until the 11th. Why does that feel like a metaphor for this podcast? That is exactly a metaphor <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, Musa is like changing the COVID rules when Ryan's already committed to, <laughs> committed yes, to something. Sally. Out here being chaotic in the UK. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, I watched I watched Dune, finally. Mm. Yeah, it was good. It was good. <laughs> you were quite like, not as much as Blade Runner 2049. I didn't personally think it was as good, no. But um, I think that's obviously because it's a two-parter, so we'll see. I don't know. I don't want to start the year off with some, I don't know. I rewatched Dunkirk again, right, for example. Oh my goodness, Dunkirk. That is a film. And like Zimmer seems to be on a bit of a run at the moment where he's kind of just, he's a little bit too extra on some so? of the sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I think he went a little bit, he, I think he went a little bit extra on Blade, Blade Runner 2049. I also think he went a little bit extra on Dune because the thing is you've got a, uh, we're, we're stepping on Chris Ryan's toes here and Sean Fennessy's toes here on the, oh, uh, on the, on the film front. So they, maybe they I knew should. What this, they knew what this was. No, no, let's get into it. Let's get, no, but what I will say, listen, on, on the, on the score front, I think that it's funny because the peak Zimmer on Dune is some of the best I've ever heard him. Like there's specific scenes, the desert warfare scene 
where he emerges out of the sand. I mean, it's super stylized, isn't it? I mean, I've not read the yeah. book. I'm going to read the book. Mm. I don't know. I always see scores as being able to massively enhance a film. They won't make a good film bad, mm. but they will stop a good film from being great. That's interesting. Yep, fair. Yep, yep. And I think with something like Dune, where you have so much of the visual is doing the work that the audio would usually do in a non-visual, in, in, a, in, a, in a movie that is not so visually stylized. Yeah. I think sometimes letting the visual have space is, is really, really integral to a score. And I think Zim has been on a bit of a run of not letting stuff breathe enough. That's interesting. Whereas with Dunkirk, it was the opposite. It was very much like it was constantly there, this constant sense of, of increasing tension, but the visual was allowed to breathe in a, in a visually not, not quite as stylized or spectacular setting, if that makes sense. I, I can't believe I just said that this fictional world of, in Dune is more spectacular than one of the greatest historical No, but no, but you're, no, what you're saying is, what you're saying is of all time. sometimes sci-fi makes people overcompensate. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's an essence in sci-fi where you have to kind of like you have to ramp up everything when actually let the visual do the work, you know. Um, Are you talking know, about like for, Ralph Rangnick's like for, tactics to Manchester United? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ralph Rangnick is on a bit of a Zimmer run at the moment. But, he is. Um, he is. He is. <laughs> but like, for example, in in Dunkirk, it's got one of my favourite movie shots of all time, which is Tom Hardy Spitfire going across the beach without the propeller on. It's incredible. And it's silent. Incredible. Completely silent. That was a really, really genius idea from a score point of view because it didn't need anything. Mm. No, and there are, I think there are elements in Dune which don't need anything and they have things and I think it can be quite distracting. And I think that was the, the thing he fell into. He fell into that trick in Blade Runner, I think. But anyway. No, no, but actually, no, there's a good point you, know. you make here because you know what, sometimes uh, I was watching um, a very uneven series. I've mentioned the newsletter, actually, study newsletter, check it out, um, where watching Foundation, this this Apple TV series. is oh, the Asimov thing. Very uneven, very uneven. But again, at its peak, it's incredible. And there's a particular moment where the most powerful moment of the final of the first season is in the final episode. There's a revenge scene. Those who haven't, those who've seen it now, I'm talking, there's a revenge scene. And when the moment of revenge happens, the sound cuts out mm. really beautifully. And it occurred to me, I was like, wow, so much art is noisy. So much art is noisy and actually sometimes stripping things away is the true power. And I'm working on a project at the moment. Don't worry, like oh, more books. No, no, no. Just working on a project at the moment. And the only real thing is very early stages of work on it, Ryan. But the thing I keep saying to myself is don't overwrite it. Yeah, yeah. Don't overwrite it. And I think there's a big, you know, actually we get to the football actually in relation to this. I think there's a lot of overwriting going on. Yeah, I agree in football at the moment, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think also from an art point of view, especially in film or TV, silence can be the most powerful climactic score. Harder they fall. For that moment. Good example, yeah. harder they fall. So many yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. songs, so many amazing songs on that soundtrack. At the same time, the most powerful moments of the movie, Jonathan Major's eyes. Yeah, see, I, felt, I think they fell into a bit of a trap with this movie. They obviously wanted it to dip the toe into the Tarantino thing. Bingo, yeah, bingo. What would have made that movie a hell of a lot better because some of the, some of the artistic cuts at the beginning, like when, the, when Jonathan Majors turns up and then the titles roll. Yes. That's amazing from, mm. a, from a stylistic point of view. But then I think some of that gets lost. And, you know, when, when the score becomes distracting or the soundtrack becomes distracting in the movie, I think that can really throw the movie off course. And I think this is the thing with June. I thought it was like a movie of one third and two thirds. I actually thought that after about a third of the way through the movie, I was just like, I don't actually think this is very good. That's interesting. Then the second two thirds of the movie convinced me that it actually was. But I think with a movie like June, when, you have, when you're presenting with something like that, mm. like when you're giving all of those ingredients a third of the way through the movie, anyone who is remotely into that kind of movie should not be thinking, is this actually good? No, they should. Do you know? Oh my God. We're going to, this is, this is the segues to football only because, you know, like at the end of the day, these are all narratives, right? At the end of the day, do you know what, you're, it, do you know yeah. what it is? Ralph Rangnick is the Dennis Villeneuve of football. <laughs> wow. No, that's too much. That's too, no. That, do you know? Oh my God. <laughs> we need to do admin. We've gone on for 10 minutes. We said before we recorded, right, let's make this, you know, let's get really efficient on the recording. Like, you know, because we've got a lot to talk about, but we don't need to talk about all of it. And we spent 10 minutes talking about movies. And it's not even a movie podcast. 
Then again, fo- no, hang on a minute, but football's a movies. Like I watched The Lost Daughter recently, right? And a lot of people are raving about that movie. And I watched it and I was like, do you know what? This movie is obviously, it's obviously brilliant. And it's also emotionally not for me in the same sense that 21 Grams, which is a brilliant movie. I adore it in many ways, but emotionally it wasn't for me because it's not speaking to me in, in the ways that those movies can. There are games of football that are like that. You watch Serie A, watching The Lost Daughter is like watching peak Juventus. It's like, it's like watching Juventus in the mid nineties, take a one nil lead after 12 minutes and just hold on to the lead and just like kill the game. That's what The Lost Daughter is like. It's technically brilliant. It's superbly executed. Mm. But if you're looking for a different type of thrill, it won't give you that. It will give you something else. It's a meditative. It's like, um, you know, those 200 page novels, which are just about someone grieving. Mm. That's what it's about. And it, it's brilliant in that sense. And I think, you know, f- football, football matches are movies really, right? And I only mention that because I compared the Chelsea Liverpool to an action movie where there's a car chase at the start. And that's what Chelsea Liverpool was like, but it's on a different day. So I don't always want to watch a Chelsea Liverpool. The reason I wanted to watch it at the particular time is because it arrived in that perfect pocket, Chelsea Liverpool, you know, the Christmas, New Year pocket, which is the perfect time to consume anything. And right there at that point, you get a footballing classic. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes the context of a match, like you don't always want to watch an action movie, right? Mm. After watching eight seasons of Homeland, the next thing we watched, believe it was like a Tyler Perry rom-com. Because you don't want to watch like another act. Once, once you've had Homeland eight seasons, you can't go straight to something else. And this is the thing about football this year. I'm trying to vary my footballing watching diet. Like I'm trying to dot around league to league a lot more <laughs> because I can't. After Chelsea Liverpool, I was like, what do I watch after this? You yeah. know, what do you, what do you what? <laughs> Anyway, right. We need to do some admin. Admin, admin. Yeah, This yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah. It is ridiculous. We're getting fired already. We're first game back. <laughs> First of all, we hope everyone's staying safe and well. Had a lo- and had a lovely holiday period, New Year. I'd managed Happy to get boosted if I had the vaccine already and if they didn't have get the vaccine. Get boosted. Yeah, yeah. Second of all, theringer.com forward slash soccer. There will be some stuff going up. We're going to get back right into quick, 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 sharp. There's not going to be a newsletter this week because we're going to save it an extra week. Um, so no newsletter on Wednesday this week, but we will, that will return next week, as will Righty's House and the full Ringer FC schedule. So we thought we'd hold the newsletter for the full Ring FC schedule and we've got a little bit more to talk about. And yeah, other than that, Stadio Outro's Place on Spotify. That's where you can find all the music we play out on each episode. Newest one is at the top. Just search for Stadio Outros on Spotify. We hope everyone enjoyed our Christmas playlist that we did. If you haven't heard that, go to the Stadio Spotify page and you can, you can find it on there. Or you would have heard about it if you had subscribed to our newsletter. Stadio.football, scribe, scroll to the bottom. Pop your email address in. We only use it to send you stuff. We don't pass it on to anyone. Uh, and that is it. That's all the admin. Right. So today we're going to talk about kind of three main things. So we're going to talk about Manchester United versus Wolves. We're then going to talk a little bit about Arsenal, Manchester City and Chelsea versus Liverpool, plus the Romelu Lukaku thing. And then we'll do some questions. So let's get into it after this. All right, man. To Old Trafford. Wolves recorded their first win at Old Trafford since 1980. Because before I was born and since you were a wee nipper. I had a book out by then, I think. (laughs) 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 Wasn't I born in the 60s, Ryan? (laughs) (laughs) Where would you like to start? Start with Wolves. Let's start with Wolves because Wolves, they haven't played since the 0-0 draw against Chelsea on the 19th of December due to COVID. They had the Watford game postponed. They had Arsenal, the Arsenal game postponed. I don't think Manchester United can have any real complaints about the result here. Like that first half in particular, I know it's by no means a, a metric or a stat that anyone would want to judge the base of a game on. But the fact that Wolves had six, I think six corners at the end of the first half compared like to... 14 shots or something? Yeah, compared to Manchester United, I thought was a sign just of how territorially dominant they were. And in wide areas. Like, this was a strange thing. Look, and again, keeping this on Wolves, they just conceded the flanks to Wolves. And this is the strange thing. I've got to say this. The 4-2-2-2 formation, I... I just don't like it. I've never liked it. I, I remember, and actually it's quite rare. You don't see it that often. You don't see it that often in football. Um, it's a bit of an outlier because it's asking so much of your wide players. 
you're asking a lot. If you're playing a 4-2-2-2, you are putting an exceptional creative burden on your fullbacks. Mm. And one thing we know about Aaron Ronbasaka is that he is not the most creative of fullbacks. Um, and again, though, but credit to Wolves playing with a back three, uh, which is the solid back three, and the fullbacks pushing up, just extremely impressive. And not just the formation, but just the combination play. Mm. How they understand each other in their movements. Everyone's got a key role. And, you know, actually, I've got to say, Wolves, shout out to them. They were so impressive against Manchester City. The Raul Jimenez over the Raul Jimenez record overshadowed a really superb performance from them, and it's a sad thing because the Raul Jimenez record was so absurd, right? It was so ridiculous that mm. people that didn't watch the game just saw that, and that was their main takeaway. They saw that, or maybe a three-minute highlight reel about City grinding out a victory, and they might have thought that Wolves parked the bus. But actually, what Wolves did was a bit more sophisticated than that, mm. using Adama Traoré as an outlet. You know, who's someone, Adama Troy is an interesting one because he gets quite a bit of criticism for not having more of an end product. And I think that's a frustration just because he's so gifted on the ball. But some players actually, they have a disruptive quality that's not always about like just piling up the stats. Mm. Adama Troy's role is, he's a, a bit what, um, you know, in German football, they talk about the joker as a substitute that comes in and changes the game. He's a joker that starts matches, I think, in the sense that he's, you look at Alexis Sanchez type figure. He's a figure who is allowed to be chaotic because he disrupts your pressing systems, your rhythms, because he can, he'll take anyone. I think Adama Traore is one of those players who he, he could be on his day, like top 10 in the world at beating someone one-on-one. Does that yeah. make sense? I mean, he has I, think, been, I mean, when he comes on, which he's, he did on Monday, yeah, he, he's all oiled up. Hard to keep a hold of, man, at that, that stage of the game. With half an hour to go, in a game like Wolves, sorry, I know I cut in there, but I just wanted no, no, to go for say it, go, on, no, on the Traore. Tri- I think go, you've, go. You've, you've highlighted something really, really interesting here with Traore because the fact, if you look at Wolves games, I think only three games this season in the league, um, three games that they've played in the league this season, I think have been decided by more than a single goal margin. Yeah. I think it was their win over Watford. I think their mm. defeat to Palace and their defeat to Brentford. Only three games this season have been decided by more than a single goal margin. All of those games were by two goals. So if you look at their last however many games, let's say since they lost to, uh, to Palace 2-0, they beat West Ham 1-0, they drew 0-0 with Norwich, they drew 0-0 with Burnley, they lost 1-0 to Liverpool, they lost 1-0 to City, they beat Brighton 1-0, they drew 0-0 with Chelsea, and then they beat Manchester United 1-0. These are, I think we talked about this before Christmas when we were talking about Arsenal's upcoming run. Obviously, Arsenal didn't end up playing Wolves in the end, which I think for Arsenal's sake was a good thing. Yes. but And we'll talk about Arsenal a little bit later, but Wolves, what is that thing on match of the day where they, I think they've got two points per goal in the league this season, the highest goal per or points per goal. And it shows you how good they are defensively. They're extremely hard to break down. Much better size than Manchester United have found that out this season as we just talked about the results. And when you have someone like Adama Traore to come on with 25 minutes to go, Mm. And then all of a sudden, that side has a, a kind of chaos agent. Yes. That is such a tricky thing to counter, I think, tactically. Rangnick mentioned at half, uh, after the game where he said, like, by the end of the first half, we just couldn't control the midfield. We had zero control. And that's why they, he did that tactical shift in the second half. To the back three, yeah. Taking off Greenwood for Financh, which I didn't think was the... I don't think it was the best choice in terms of who to remove, but I think it was... It was a really good addition. Manchester United definitely had their better period, I think, or their best. But they had that five minutes, which was kind of their best of the game, where the atmosphere seemed to really shift at Old Trafford. But going back to what you're saying, like, so I know I've lingered the point a little bit. No, but, go for it, go for it, go for it. Those are two very, very controlled tactical ideas from Large that I think really, really play into Wolves' strengths this season. It's funny, it's funny in terms of how he uses Adama Troy, like he used him as a kind of more conventional hold-up man. Um, mm. against City. So it's it's impressive what he gets out of players. He mm. sent on um, Troy to disrupt. Um, he used him against City to contain. But the thing about Large, and this is coming to United eventually, Large seems to see the characteristics of his players and build a team accordingly. Mm. Rangnick has his tactical setup 
and doesn't build, he, he has a, he has a, he has a, a tactical system and like, okay, here's my system and I'll put the players into it. As opposed to, let me say, they're going to hate you saying this, the Antonio Conte approach, which is to basically say, here are my players, what's mm-hmm. the system that best suits the players? And the problem with the 4-2-2-2 is you'd be very, very hard pressed to find two midfielders anywhere in the Premier League who are very well suited to that. Anywhere. It is extremely difficult to play a midfield two in a narrow, with all the width. If you look at the problems that Manchester United had, it's quite funny because the problems Manchester United had against Liverpool overloads in midfield because the two were isolated. Rangnick has basically taken that and <laughs> emphasised it. Yeah, I think I think I think with with tactical systems and and formations as a, as a as a general concept, I think they don't in it, they don't really do a huge amount, or they're not hugely important in an attacking sense because it's player positions. But a defensive sense. But in a de- this, this, this is where the the formation comes in in terms of a defensive setup. This is the key. Yeah, the strain and the stress that is put on a midfield two in a four two two two. In comparison, when say you have a four a three four three, is astronomically different because you, know, you like, have so, yeah, so yeah, many. So, yeah, yeah. You know, you want to use the June thing. It's essentially like battling without having one of those cool shields that you press on the watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas you're so exposed. You know, so it's like watching someone where people look like you're in a moving house and people don't know how to lift boxes mm. and they're putting stress on all the wrong joints. Mm. It's like that. It's like, unfortunately, the Manchester United um, tactical system is almost like stress testing mm. players' greatest weaknesses. But no, on Wolves, you're going to go back to Wolves. Yeah, let's talk about Wolves for a couple of minutes more and then we'll talk about Manchester United because I thought that the shots thing was a little bit of a, a little bit of a catfish because so many of the shots from both sides actually in the first half were just from way out and they were, they were nothing shots. But I think that what, even though I don't think they tested De Gea massively in the first half, you could sense that with every wayward long shot from Wolves or every corner that they got it was or turnover and possession from Manchester United there was just this this sense of momentum that Wolves had that you could only really see you could only really see one side going ahead really and there was this moment I think it was what 34 minutes in Wan-Bissaka th- uh, takes a throw and gets it back and then just kind of hits this absolutely nothing ball into the middle of midfield when there were three wide open United players in a defensive in more of a defensive part of the pitch Wolves intercept break I can't remember if De Gea makes a save from the Mm. resulting shot and then it bounces out and Ronaldo just does that nothing header yes and then just stands there that little section of play it was about 30 seconds I think kind of summed up what happened to Manchester United over the whole course of the game. This is the funny thing. And I, I like that you mentioned this. I love that you mentioned this because I'm thinking now about anyone listening to this podcast who's ever performed, ever done any kind of performance, whether you've been on stage, whether you've been a performance poet, whatever. There's a terrifying moment when you're performing and at every performance, any like length will have it. Where you're like, the crowd isn't feeling this. And you can't get them back on side. You can't like, and you've been practicing, you might've been practicing script for the last like two months and you've all been rehearsing and workshopping and you put it out in front of a packed theater and people are not feeling it. And that is astonishingly intimidating. And that point you're like, oh my God, but only in the first act, there's two acts to go and it's terrible. And you come off stage and like, you look at the drained faces of the actors who are going to go on stage. You're like, this is awful. And there's nowhere to hide. And this is the thing. There's a lot of comment about, oh, the players don't care. Listen, we are underestimating, Ryan, the extent to which it is astonishingly intimidating to be playing in front of 76,000 people and the script, the script is not good. The script is not good. The mm-hmm. actors are fluffing their lines. You know, some of the passing you're seeing, the bad passing, people, oh, United are messing up these easy parts. You know what? A lot of this is psychological. No one's ever going to admit to it. This is all guesswork, right? Because no player is going to come out and be like, actually, we're intimidated by the high expectations and our low performances. No one's actually going to come out and say that because that's the kind of the fourth wall that you don't break. But I think there is a lot of fear in the United performances because look, it's high turnover of managers, change of coaching systems, Carrick has left. That's a foundation of United that's gone, right? That is in its own way as significant as like Ferguson's Backstaff leaving, or like, you know, Michael Carrick is a Manchester United institution at this point and he's gone. Yeah. And right. So there's so many things that have gone. So 
You have the traumatic turnover of Moyes coming in and getting rid of the backroom staff. There is so much turmoil United, right? And for all the talk about players not caring, I think some of these players care too much. Do you know that some of the loose passing in this game reminded me of when Arsenal went to Liverpool to Anfield and actually did a lot of good things at Anfield, I thought, despite the results, some really good things. This season? Yeah, but a couple of the passes, it was at Tavares made a couple of passes, I thought to myself, there are some passes now and again when you see them like, that's the kind of pass that you only play when you're actually trying, you're not, not trying, you're trying too hard actually. Trying to force the issue because yeah, because people are always talking about one Bissaka's lack of creativity, including on this podcast that we talk about it. But it is a problem, obviously. Mm. And then you're playing in a four-two-two-two, and you've got an ocean of space ahead of you because the wingers who went wide eventually they went they came wingers eventually, but fundamentally, one Bissaka is looking at seventy yards of space ahead of him, and he's expected, you know, with that space, Danny Alves thrives. Pete Danny Alves is like, oh my goodness, I'm just going to eat that. I'm going to feed on that. Like it's, I'm going to graze on that. Whereas one Bissaka is going, wow, like I'm not the guy that builds up play like everyone wants me to. Mm. Like you're asking a lot. So it's, I guess I'm just throwing that in there to check the kind of conversation and narrative about the fact these players don't care. I don't think that's the case. It's a tricky one because I think, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about the rest of stuff later on, but I think Rangnick deserves a, a bit of sympathy in the sense that you've got a new manager coming in who has had a few weeks kind of wiped off of the training ground because of having to shut it down because of COVID. Mm. The variables that are at play because of COVID this season, I think it's different to how it was when football came back the first time around because I th- think it's pr- it was probably way more controlled. Yeah. You know, you got, you've seen players going into the crowd now celebrating and stuff like that. And Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. It's kind of just like, right, it's, it's transitioned from something I think that was preventing football from happening to now that football is just learning to navigate. Mm. Manchester City at top of the league and kind of cruising at the moment. And I think a lot of that has been down to being able to keep probably the most stable squad available for as many games as possible. I mean, they've had some people out for sure, but also the strength and depth they have means that they're way more equipped to navigate I'm starting that to wonder to if they else. had the first, I'm starting to wonder if they actually like created their own vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> One final thing on Wolves before we move on, because what you said before, I think is really interesting uh, about finding the best thing for the players that you have. And it's very similar to what Nuno did, I think, when Nuno first rocked up at Wolves. And I think that what Bruno Large is doing this season at Wolves, while it may not, it's weird because even though they're not blowing teams away or scoring a load of goals, I actually found them quite fun to watch. Yeah. Anything else on Man United and Rangnick? Or we're going to wait more about that because no, I think I think I think I think it's I think it's fair to um, step back for the moment and then like assess it later. But early indications are he might have to change. Well, I, th- I think he will have to change formation to get the best out of this set of players. Quick shout out for the return of Phil Jones. I would just say yeah, that. yeah. Luke um, Shaw so- shouted him out in the, his post match interview. Actually, shout out to Phil Jones. Actually, um, he wasn't bad. He wasn't bad. Um, yeah, I mean his header felt it. He could have probably done a little bit better with that header for Giamatino, but there's still a lot to do there. I think. I, I think if he could have done anything better, I think he could have come to the ball with more urgency. But that was the thing that affected all United's defensive mm. players. To be honest, um, he stood off perhaps slightly too much throughout the game. Uh, there's a few games where there's a few moments where you know you see players jockeying. Mm jockeying the ball. There's a great description. Um, as you said, Lowe noticed this. It came up in the um, Getafe Real Madrid game about uh, Carlo Ancelotti about pessimistic defenders. Defenders who expect the worst, which I love. Um, and defenders who expect the worst commit slightly earlier. So Militao made a bad mistake for Getafe's goal. That was a good game, actually, Getafe Real. Mm. Uh, Getafe beating Real 1-0. Big shot. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so maybe more pessimistic defending from Phil Jones, but he'll get that back as he gets into the the swing of things. And you know what? Here's the thing very quickly. A back three of Jones, Maguire and Varane is pretty handy, actually. Mm. Like, I'm not, I'm not against that as a back three for United. Um, no, I mean, I'm not. And I have to be honest, I think United could do a lot worse than playing a, a back three at the moment. Yeah. Should we take a break and then move on to the rest of the stuff? Let's do it. All right, man, let's quickly touch on the aftermath of Arsenal versus Manchester City. And I only want to do this briefly because it happened, obviously, what, Saturday? Yeah. Arsenal's super impressive, I thought. This was a really, really good barometer of where Arsenal have progressed to this season. Yeah. Didn't have a huge amount of the ball. 
Man City obviously had the higher XG, but I think a lot of that was down to the, the proximity where the winner was scored and obviously the penalty. Mm. And I think one of the most encouraging things for me from this was actually how Arsenal responded after going down to 10 men. Mm. That minute was, or two minutes, was kind of the whole thing that decided the game. The penalty awarded, Martinelli hitting the post after getting screened by Stuart Atwell, and then the Gabriel red or second yellow. Yeah. Most of the questions we had on this were about the VAR. So Patrick Corker and VAR, my real question is how can clubs across the Premier League affect change with the standard of officiating if at all? Every week there is something going on but nothing changes and there isn't any accountability. Um, voluntarily bald. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, I know you guys don't particularly like talking referees but is there anything that the PGMOL can learn from our friends on the continent in terms of training and recruiting? To be honest, I don't really know because I'm not really privy to the ins and outs of how referees are trained elsewhere in Europe or in the PGMOL to be honest. But um, we did do a thing on this, what, a couple of episodes before we wrapped for Christmas. So we don't want to go too much into it but I just wanted to touch on those two incidents. So the yeah. Erdogan penalty shout, yeah. which is very early on, mm. and the Bernardo Silva penalty shout, and the how differently the two were dealt with. Erdogan, I thought was a penalty. Me too. And Bernardo Silva, unfortunately, I think he had to give it. Bernardo Silva had decided, oh, you know, I might just, I'm having a nice stroll through London this afternoon. I'm tumbling, ah, he's got a bit of my shirt. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll lean into that. So he, he had to, unfortunately, and I think the nature of VR, unfortunately, is that things that look bad in real time look even worse on replay. And I saw that and just, you know, the Odegaard thing that just surprised me because that to me was a penalty too. I think they were both penalties. Yeah, it's really interesting. How I think I mentioned this before, how Sky Germany commentators just usually, like they were watching the replay back for the <laughs> uh, Bernardo Silva penalty and they were just like, that's, that's not a penalty. And they were absolutely adamant. And this happens so often this time, this season that they, they're like, for me, it's not a penalty. And they say it over and over again. And then it gets given and they're just like, all right, I have no, really, I have no idea what, why. And I think the thing with the Bernardo one was, and this is again my problem. My problem, my problem isn't really with referees necessarily. It's with mm. the application of the technology. And this is like what I think we said pretty much <clears throat> in a longer version before Christmas in that, the Odegaard thing needs to get reviewed 100%. Yeah. But also, there's a responsibility to relay the angle and the speed that most accurately portrays what happened. So for the, why the decision's being made, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for the Bernardo Silva one, they kept showing Atwell the completely wrong angle. This is different where you have two decisions in a game because not all decisions are the same and not all actions are the same. But I think in terms of how they were applied and kind of how soft both of them were, Mm. I think both were penalties. Yeah, and I, I, the thing is, the Bernardo thing, you know what, I, I don't like it because of the way he goes down. Like he's clearly looking for something before the contact comes. And it's just, it's frustrating because I remember seeing it and going, the referee has to give this, I think, mm. but you're damned. You're damned either way with this. Mm. Um, and it's a very, you know, it's a lonely place to be as a referee when you're making shouts like that. But the Odegaard thing, I just didn't get. I don't know if there's an element of like, maybe this is, you know, things being early in a game, uh, you know, relatively early in a game, do you give them so much? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. Well, I think we'll talk much. about that with Sadio Mane actually in a little bit. Because do, do, do you mean, because maybe that's, yeah. a, maybe that's a trend with things. Yeah, but, but to be honest, I don't, I don't just, know. just I don't do know. it. Just, just do it. I think that, but also one thing I would absolutely say here, and this is something that I think people really need to stop talking about, is the whole, conspiratorial oh my god nature of refereeing I don't think referees given referees have got enough to deal with without having to keep track of biases against certain clubs I don't feel that referees are biased specifically against one club or another I think referees get a lot of stuff right that we don't give them credit for because we expect them to get it right all the time and this is something that we said on the on on that podcast where we were talking about the VAR decisions because it was that wild weekend that we did the podcast after referees are going to make mistakes and as fans, we have to allow them to have those mistakes. The thing that we need to criticise more is that referees are now in a position where they have got technology in order to correct mistakes. So we need to see the application of that technology used. Like for example, if Stuart Atwell gets four or five different angles of that, like everyone else did on TV before he'd even gone to look at it, mm. 
any decision or any action on a football pitch can look either 100% nailed on or 100% not at slow-mo. Some of them may need more on one angle, but use what I'm trying to fucking say is look at all the angles. Why is a referee getting one angle that makes it look more of a penalty than if it does from another angle? Right. That's all. It's and that and that's the thing because everyone can see this now. So everyone's getting really frustrated by it. And referees aren't doing themselves any favors. So I have sympathy for referees right in the middle of it because they're the only people who don't get access to all of these different angles all of the time, like we do watching it at home. But now they have. So therefore, if they don't want to use the technology to make their own jobs easier, then kind of what else can you do? Absolutely. No, you're right. You're right. Anyway, Christoph Simpson and Harry Riley said, um, how should Arsenal players realistically feel about their first half against Man City? Not sure if statement moral victories exist. <laughs> and Harry says, is there such a thing as a positive statement defeat? And if so, does Arsenal's performance against Manchester City fall into this category? It's like we mentioned at the top, I think that the performance was more important than the result here. Oh, far more important, yeah. And maybe, actually, Mikel Arteta has been accused of trying to kind of galaxy brain Pep and outthink him in the games that they've played so far with tactical quirks, maybe he landed his most genius one yet and that was to get COVID. <laughs> oh God, that is galaxy brain. Oh my- the, the thing that Pep will expect the least is if I'm not there. Amazing. <laughs> Can I say this about um, the first half against Manchester City was so impressive from Arsenal. Mm. And if you look at that performance and the players who were key, in, especially in the opening goal, Mm-hmm. The opening goal of the game, Odegaard to Tierney to Saka, they opened up City in a way that City aren't very very often opened up. No, nope. They opened them up, like inside and out. That is extremely impressive. They scored actually a very Manchester City goal and they moved through that team with such ease. And you know, City's goals came from defensive misunderstanding and a highly disputed and debatable penalty like a, dis- a debatable, but still a penalty, I feel. But still, City had to resort to grit. But this wasn't Manchester City overwhelming a team. This was not mm. remotely that, as I call it, the Arteta derby. You know, they, they were narrow victors in this, but a point for Arsenal, I think, was the fairest result. A victory would have created unfair expectations. That's why I feel yeah. a, defeat was a, a defeat was a bit cruel, actually. I think a point, but look, shout out to the recruitment at Arsenal because we're seeing some good signings. Shout out to Arteta's handling of Aubameyang mm. um, and the squad. And just, you look at this Arsenal team and you think about it, not in terms of this year where they're going to end up because to me, that's not the conversation. The conversation is, what is this team's three-year arc looking like? And it's extremely positive. And you're not seeing bad. with Arteta, the last few months, you're really seeing why Pep was so furious that he left mm-hmm. Manchester City. You are understanding now he asserts himself, he makes a tough decision and he moves forward. And that's the mark of a very good manager. I was going to say, I didn't mention it on uh, here because it was already, we'd already wrapped, but um, I went on second captains and talked to Ken about Arsenal just before Christmas. And it was actually really co- good to see how, what Arteta said about the phases of his management since he's been there. He's kind of like been spot on. It was just like the first phase was just like, right, we need to plug the holes. Secondly, yeah. we need to start kind of like bucketing the water out right, bit right. by bit. And then we need to kind of start repairing the boat. And, you know, so far, yeah, it's staying afloat. That's my metaphor. I managed to do it all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, I like what I'm seeing from Arsenal. I like it. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. That means that Manchester City are 10 points clear at the top of the Premier League. They extended their lead due to Chelsea and Liverpool drawing to all at Stamford Bridge. We've got a couple of City questions and then we'll move on to Chelsea-Liverpool. From Barry Brodney, who said, with Manchester City having a cushion in the Premier League, is a treble possible with them saving their best squads for the FA Cup and the Champions League? A treble is always possible with Manchester City. That's the thing. It's always possible. Mm -hmm. With the quality of coaching, primarily, and then also the resources, because we have to give credit to the coaching and the resources, they're always, always a treble threat, without question. Again, you know, you look at the goal scoring, they're finding goals from everywhere. I've said this before about goal scorers and strikers and I know I sound like a walking cliche here, but the late stages of the Champions League mm-hmm. do require sharp shooters. And the one thing that has maybe cost City before is, well, there's a couple of things going on, but one of them is a sharp shooter. 
But we'll see, you know, they, they are a triple threat without question. I think the league is, is very much theirs to lose. It's not controversial saying that. Yeah, I agree. The Champions League, of course, is the, the big obsession for the club and for Pep, as it should be. It's Manchester City. I'm not sure if they're any closer to that dream than they were last year. And I'm not saying that out of disrespect. I'm just saying that I'm not sure. Mm. Um, we had a question from Moko said, are you concerned that Manchester City's resources will lead the Premier League resembling Bayern in the Bundesliga slash PSG in League A or without Pep do they slide back to the pack? I think this is interesting. Manchester City are further out in front in the Premier League than Bayern are in the Bundesliga. I'm not worried about that because no, I'm not. I think the quality of Pep's coaching is actually underrated. Yeah, I agree. I think if, if, you, if you give those players to... 90% of other coaches, Man City are back in the, in the mix. They're not 10 points clear. Pep is a genius and he is such a genius that we forget, we're, oh, City got all the money. Yeah, they do have all the money, but hey, look, so did Manchester United. So did Manchester United and Manchester United are avowedly not, I mean, there are many things in United, but they are not 10 points clear in the Premier League. Pep's brilliance is understated. It really is. I know we talk about it all the time in this podcast, but I think people still don't realise just how good Pep actually is, which is partly his own, yeah, he's made his I own mean, bed because he's gone to clubs with so many resources that it's hard to gauge just yeah, how good he is. But I don't think he cares though. Oh yeah, I don't. Not anymore. I think, I think there was I think a time he did. A bit, he did. Yeah. I think there was a time, but I think we're seeing a different Pep now. Yeah. Let's talk about Chelsea-Liverpool. First half was where it was all at. Uh, Mane taking the lead, but giving Liverpool the lead, sorry, after nine minutes. Mo Salah with a lovely goal for Liverpool second. Oh my God. So good, man. Um, that and dummy, then, the hesitation he puts so on good. Marcus Alonso is out of this. It's out of this world. Put him on skates, good. and then um, Kovacic is unbelievable backpedaling volley in off the post. It's a step back three with the hands in his face. It was a step back three. It was so good, man. And one, I think. Uh, yeah. And then Pulisic getting the equaliser in stoppage time. That was a wild few minutes. And that first Kovacic. half was really where it was all at. I loved Kovacic at Real Madrid and he just never really got the minutes. And I always looked to him in that squad and just thought, my God, like, I mean, even when he was at Inter, I was just like, mm. this man is a technical marvel. You know, that player that like Real Madrid just seemed to stockpile for a few mm -hmm. years. They have these absurdly talented midfielders who would start almost anywhere else. Like someone like Isco. Isco would start for like 99% of teams anywhere else in the world. And Real, he's just like an afterthought, right? And for me, I know the different, different types of player, but for me, Kovacic was in the Isco class. And I'm so glad that he's showing people that. The ability of Kovacic to break the press, to receive the ball five yards outside his own area and just beat two men. Mm. Beat, beat two men of the best press you'll find anywhere in the world. Like it's nothing. He did that time and again against Liverpool. It was outstanding. But also shout out to N'Golo Kante, who all the cliches about his, you know, his, his engine. This man's ability to break ground. This, there was a point in the first half where N'Golo Kante received possession and it was a guarantee he beat the first man he took on. Mm. It, was a guarantee, it was a guarantee. And yeah. he's, he's, I mean, I love N'Golo Kante. He's, he's, man. Yeah, he's amazing. Just, you were saying earlier about Premier League midfield partnerships who could play in, in that kind of 4 and I think one of the few candidates is probably Kante and Kovacic, actually. Yes, yes, that's a very good shout. But, all right, quick one. Should Mane have gone? Um, does it matter? I mean, it does probably for the context of the game, but I... Th I it would not have been a wild injustice if he had gone. I think he should have gone. It would not I have think been it would have been, injustice. I think it probably may have been one of those when you're like, oh, I really, I really don't want to see him get sent off here. But I think he has to go. There's no intent there. You know, he's not snuck a look at Aspilicueta and gone, right, I'm going gonna, gonna to nail you here. But it's dangerous, man. It would not it's have been dangerous. an unfair dismissal. Yeah, not an unfair I mean, dismissal. But it was so soon. Do you think, like you were saying before about the Erdogan decision, it was probably too early in the game to make such a call. Which shouldn't, it shouldn't be the case. It's funny that, because you look at like the uh, Champions League final 2019, the penalty after two minutes. Yeah. Like, you have to be ready to give anything whenever. That's the thing. And, yeah. But we're, yeah, we're, hu we're humans. We're humans, so we don't want to. We don't want to do that. Um, because you don't want to, you know, in quotes, ruin the spectacle, but it's not you ruining the spectacle. It's the person that made the careless foul, the reckless foul. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I yeah. get that. 
And I think Tom, Thomas Tuckle after the game, he did quite well, I think, with all of the questions that he got asked about this and then obviously about the Lukaku stuff, which we'll talk about in a sec. But yeah, he said something very similar about, you know, the spectacle and people have come to see 11 against 11. But for him, it was a it was a clear red. Jordan Henderson was very much on captain duty. Yeah. Basically being like, oh, you can't give him red for that. <laughs> can't give him red. <laughs> so <honest>. partisan. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about Romelu Lukaku, who oh, was dear. not in the squad. Oh dear. After his interview with Sky Sports in Italy was aired, what, Thursday or Friday before the game? It was recorded a few weeks ago. It was recorded a few weeks ago. Yeah. And some quotes from Fabrizio Romano came out a little bit before the interview was aired and emphasised certain points, which meant, to be honest, he could have said anything he wanted about Thomas Tuchel in a positive sense after this. The main quotes that were pulled were already out there for everyone who hadn't read or seen the full interview because it hadn't been translated properly at that point. So therefore, I think the damage had already been done. It had, actually, having said that though, because, so there's a big piece on this um, by uh, in The Athletic, by Simon Johnson and David Ornstein and others, other reporters. James Horncastle as well. I think. So, and James Horncastle was involved too. He was in the mix, right? So um, that's a superb piece. And the funny thing is I went through three phases with this. I saw the quotes at first and was like, well, these quotes look bad. Then I was like, oh, they have context that I read the full piece and I was like, this actually looks worse in context. This is actually even in, it's in my, it's even worse in my opinion because, so Lukaku, I didn't really clock this and I, Romelu Lukaku, I suppose I could call this story, this, it was, I'm going to call it Romcom Lukaku <laughs> because I just watched a movie, um, as it Boxing Day, I think it is. Boxing Day is a rom-com and it's about, uh, a British writer who comes back to the UK with his American girlfriend, but he's still in love with his British ex. And this is absolutely the plot of Lukaku, Inter and Chelsea. He's still in love with Inter. Um, but unfortunately for him, as in Boxing Day, Inter's moved on. And this is really bad for Lukaku because this is a spectacular unforced error. Just before we move on from this, yeah. let's just shout out the questions we had on this. Uh, yeah, sure. Brian Robbins said, what is the correct course of action for Tuchel Ari Lukaku? What does Lukaku need to do next? Clive O'Connor said, hot takes on the Lukaku saga, please. YV said, thoughts on the Lukaku saga. There's a lot of saga being thrown around here. What will it take for him to regain the trust of his teammates? So yeah, there were a few people who asked his questions about the Lukaku stuff. Just want to shout them out. Yeah, no, of course. They're all great questions. And um, I mean, like you call it a saga, but I, I call it a rom-com, to be honest. That's what it is to me. Like in the sense that the love that he has for Inter will not be reciprocated. It's not, it's, it's, it's gone. Like Simone Zaga has done a great job of the transition. Edin Dzeko is there in scoring and Inter look great. They look mm-hmm. solid. They look really solid from back to front. Uh, they, could have, uh, they, could have, they could have been a nominee for Team of the Year, to be honest. Yeah, and Chalanolu's there doing really well. Like it all looks good for Inter, right? So mm-hmm. there's no natural place there. Now you're at Chelsea with Tuchel. And the problem with, with this was, and I kept thinking this at the weekend, Lukaku has no leverage, Ryan. Yeah, there's He nothing. has no leverage. No. Tuchel won a Champions League with a team that wasn't fully his own, right? He won that without Lukaku. He won that without a, a conventional centre forward. Uh, Olivier Lukaku, Drew would uh, like a word. Thank you very much. Right, but you know, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Right? So in terms <laughs> Please of start, do not disrespect in terms of a, Olivier anymore. Do you know, can I say this? This man is the most respected, disrespected footballer, I think, in modern football history. Yeah, it's now gone, didn't he? Yeah, he's now, he's, he's so Jerusalem law is like the respect version of Firmino's law. Yeah, exactly. He's like, he's the most respected, disrespected footballer, I think, in modern yeah, history I think now. You're, I think he's uh, um, <laughs> been disrespected so much. Well, exactly, people say that he's disrespected so much that he's actually respected. Um, with Lukaku, it's like, he has got no leverage. Like, he hasn't won a trophy with Tuchel. These players will be like, we won without you. You're brought in to upgrade us. And then he's not even, he's nowhere to be seen or to be found um, for Chelsea's, well, arguably the most important game of the season so far because they had to win this. He wasn't there. Yes, we know he's had COVID, difficulty adjusting. Had an injury back, as well, didn't he? Had an, absolutely had an injury, all of that. And I say this as someone who is you know, a huge fan of Lukaku's work on and off the field. This is very much the kind of interview, can I say this? You know, there's like, um, and I've got a friend who's been through something similar at the moment where you're like, you've broken up with someone and you really want to get back in touch. It's like, do you know what? Like, you really want to, but you should need to just let it breathe now. This is very much 
an email that should have stayed as a draft. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because I, I, th- I think what he's tried to do here has been completely opposite to what has come out in terms of how it's been received. So I genuinely think he's tried to do some self-PR here with Inter. Yes. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be this kind of like, we didn't get to say goodbye, I'm really sorry. Like, And he's just done this thing like, yeah, I'd love to return to Inter one day and hopefully when I'm in my prime. Like, you know, because if you think about it, when his Chelsea contract is up, he will still still technically probably be just in his in his prime. So that in his head probably d- makes a huge amount of sense and isn't a hugely controversial claim. But the thing is, you've joined a side that's won the Champions League. We were w- one of many people who I think really saw Chelsea going on a title charge this year. And to be fair, they kind of started like they were going to. They've had some injuries. They've had a lot of COVID cases, which I think have been overlooked a lot, actually. I don't think yeah. Chelsea have actually been given that much, or the squad have been given that much credit for, the, for how they've, for how many, well, sympathy, let's say, for how many COVID cases they did have because they're Chelsea. Mm. And they're not, a, they're not a club that gets a huge amount of sympathy from, from non-Chelsea fans. Yeah. So... I think it's the unhappy, it's the unhappy thing, which is really, people have really jumped on because if he said, yeah, things are, you know, things are going great at Chelsea and I want to improve or like, I'm not perfect. I'm not massively happy with myself yet. Or I could, I still think I could give more, which I kind of think he said a little bit, actually. I think that in the grand scheme of the whole thing, it just, that, that's like, I don't think what he said about the, the Tuckle thing, for example, was wildly controversial. Reading it, it looks bad. And timing wise, it looks bad this is what i mean the interview is actually worse in context yeah it's worse you've kind of started something here that you didn't really need to do that isn't going to serve the purpose that you wanted it to serve like it hasn't mended anything with interfans for example because there was another banner outside san siro but there's there's also still a little bit of complexity there with who actually wanted to go it really sounds like inter could not say no to that kind of money Mm. but then lukaku had a deal that was set to run for another few years so he didn't really need to start talking about an extension. Right. And maybe that's a conversation with your own agent, because if you're having to get an extension, if you've won a league title and you're the best player in Serie A and you're like, wait, I'm way underpaid. At that point, you talk to your agent and go, hang on a minute, why did we go for so little? Or why didn't we back ourselves? And this, mm-hmm. is, this, is, this is the reason why this is so bad for Lukaku. The reason why this is worse than, oh, Tuchel's got me in the wrong system is that, you know, if you look at the on-field performances, it's returning from like, you know, uh, injury. The Villa cameo was outstanding. Everyone was really excited by that. Mm. Everyone was really excited. Like, if if none of this comes out, and this is the thing, Lukaku played badly against Liverpool. Yeah. In the first in the first game when Chelsea played, he played badly against them, right? And the problem now is Lukaku was signed rather like Neymar PSG. Lukaku was not signed to score against lower table opposition. Yeah. He was he was signed to score against Liverpool, and no matter what happens to the end of the season. His teammates will look at the training ground and be like, when we needed you against Liverpool, you weren't there. Because there's a lot of players in that dressing room that believe in Lukaku's ability to score at the very highest level, which a lot of pundits don't, actually. A lot of pundits don't back Lukaku in matches like the one against Liverpool, even though he sent Donnarumma the wrong way from the spot in the Euros, right? But they don't yeah, I mean, anyone, who's, anyone who watched the Lukaku in the Euros this year and, doesn't, and still thinks that can just... Right, so here's the thing. The problem is now he turns up at training with his team 10 points behind City in the league and them knowing Romelu, like if you'd been there, like and that, and now look at, at Chalabar, who's a young player, made the error for the first goal mm. and the pressure's on Chalabar, right? You put a young player under pressure, the same players who got so much praise for mentoring, you put them under pressure by your absence. Mm-hmm. This is the worst thing. This is why it's bad for him. It's not even about the external noise. It's the trust of his teammates. Yeah, the timing of it coming out is really bad. You're five months into a three hundred and forty grand a week deal. What was he? What was he thinking? Like, like I know what he was thinking, but also in terms of the, I, I don't like. I, like I say, I, I love Lukaku as a player. I love what he does on off the field. Yeah, and also let's 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 give him sympathy for the fact that he is a human being. Absolutely, him being alone in London, living in his on his own, whereas he had his family with him in Italy, mm. and you know having to spend Christmas on his own due to the COVID thing. That sucks. As someone who has lived alone uh, or lives alone and had to, you know, spend a pretty much a Christmas period alone through the first round of COVID stuff, that sucks, man. That absolutely sucks. It's horrible. However, 
that isn't a reason. He's not, he's not an inexperienced guy anymore. He's vastly experienced. He's a mature dude. He's a, we've heard him speak on some really complex topics before and he's done it amazingly well. And I'm just really, really surprised that he thought this was a good thing to do, especially without the knowledge of the club. I think he, I, but this again makes me think he knew it was going to make a little bit of noise because it wasn't sanctioned by the club. So then I'm kind of like, well, why do it? Like, you know, Inter, you know, they're not going to, they, you know, they cannot pay anywhere near the amount of money that Chelsea paid for you to bring you back. Why are Chelsea going to remotely be interested in losing money on their record signing? And you're five months into the deal and you talked about it coming home. When he signed, he was just like, I'm going home. And the thing that Lukaku hasn't had is any time at Chelsea to remotely build himself into a position where he could come out with anything like this and it would be, and it would land fine. And he also hasn't given him time. He has not given himself time to get over the breakup with Inter. Yeah. He hasn't, he went from, he went from Inter to the Euros while he was at Inter. Everyone was going, oh, you're going to stay. He was like, no, no, I promise I'll stay. He said that while he was, and also he wasn't just in one country, the Euros. He was flying from country to country. He was quite literally all over the place, quite literally. And then came to Chelsea, had this astonishing start to the season. And then like, he looked like an absolute Rolls Royce, got the injury, uh, was out for a bit, struggled to get back into it, went 10 games that goal. And then like, you know, the frustration, the anxiety, all of that sets in the old questions. Is he good enough? Big games, blah, blah, blah. The game against Liverpool, he looked anxious. All of that, all of that. And, you know, the funny thing about this, the most charitable thing I can say about this is it is so utterly human. It is yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Utter, it is so human. You read so it. So silly. You read it. It's, it's so, it's so silly. And you're like, you know, it's silly. And I get, I don't get it. Why? I'm like, at one level, I'm like, how could you? And I'm like, I actually totally get this because actually everyone has had a Lukaku on Sky Italia moment. It's not been as public, but everyone, <laughs> everyone has their version. <laughs> it could be an email, it could be a text message, it could be a conversation, but everybody has been Romelu Lukaku on Sky Sports Italy at some point. Yeah, man. Uh, so what do you think is going to happen next? I think he just has to score an absolute hatful of goals and let's be honest, cling to the Champions League like it's your, you know, honestly, cling to that like a life raft. Like, do you know what though? I think Tuchel's handled this really well so far. I think so. And I think him consulting the squad on it as well, the senior members of the squad, I think was a really good look. Yes. To be honest, I think he'll probably get a bollocking. He'll probably get a fine. And I actually think that Tuchel will use this to galvanise him a little bit more. Yeah. And what Lukaku has to do quite simply is just put in some huge performances, yeah. both in the Premier League and in Europe. I think he's not he going really anywhere. No, no, he's one can, not. He, no one can afford yeah. to pay the money. No one can yeah. afford to pay his wages, really. And, you know, the three clubs that he name checks in the um, in the interview as being like the only clubs to, you know, Bayern, Real Madrid and Barcelona, none of those people are paying you anywhere near 340 grand a week or a 100 million euro transfer fee. No way. No. So it's Chelsea and it's Chelsea. Right. I love Romelu Lukaku. I think he's had to deal with a hell of a lot more shit than a lot of footballers have ever had to deal with. Yeah. The thing that's really annoying about this is that it's just so unnecessary. Yeah. But maybe this is the spark needed to kickstart the Chelsea career properly. Yeah. I mean, he, he's ended his own honeymoon period, hasn't he? But, you know. Yeah, definitely. Should we wrap there? Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll be back on Thursday. It was a rare Tuesday outing for Stadio. But yeah, until then, hope everyone's staying safe and well. Getting boosted if you can. No doubt, get that vaccine if you can. Don't forget to check the rings.com forward slash soccer. No newsletter this week, but you can sign up still. Stadio.football, scroll to the bottom, pop in your email address. Anything you want to add, Musa Gwanga? Nothing. Oh yes, can I just one last thing? Everyone's sending in photos themselves in Stadio sweaters. I love it. <laughs> still haven't got mine. I've wandered around town um, the other day wearing mine. With my, I had my sweater on and my scarf. I felt extremely fetching. Um, honestly, it's just, Ryan, I love it so much. I, I do love Aww. it so much. It's, yeah, I've really, seen really, them yet. I've seen one in the flesh. There's just something so cool about the fact it's got a massive number eight in the back as well. I'm just loving it. Yeah, I think that anyway. number is a bit too big. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm all here for it. All right, everyone. Are we playing that one last night by scientists until Thursday. Stay safe and well. See you then. See you then. See you then.